something. It's, it's cliche to use the expression, but the Israelites, God's chosen people, they're between a rock and a hard place. Like there's the anvil and the hammer and the metal in between, and they were that piece of metal. And you might be wondering, like, how'd they get themselves in that situation? How'd they get themselves in that mess? Did they make a bad decision? Was it a, a, was it a result of a, a choice that they made, an action that they took? Uh, did they rebel against the Lord and now they found themselves in, in this setting? No, none of that. And in fact, they were following the Lord closely. And yet still, still they found themselves in this precarious situation. Once more, it's not like they made a mistake following the Lord. It's not like, well, we thought he was leading us this way, but it turns out he's leading us that way. And like, no, that, that wasn't the case for them. They were literally being led by physical manifestation of the Lord. God was physically leading them as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, as they were escaping slavery out of Egypt and as they were being led into the promised land. So they didn't have to wonder. They didn't have to wonder or question, did God really lead us here? They knew it. They knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God led them to their current situation. Now, they're up against an impenetrable, an impenetrable, I'll take three. (laughs) They're up against an immovable, we'll go with that word, immovable body of water and, uh, and the entire Egyptian army bearing down on them on the other side. Although they numbered 600,000 themselves, they would be no match it would be no match for the collective power and might of Pharaoh's army. If it's just Israel versus Egypt, it did not look good for Israel. And yet God had led them to this place and to this time. Now, if you know the outcome of the story, you know, it's, it's one that's made the movies. There's been a lot of stories told around this one. If you know the outcome, it's a dramatic defeat of the Egyptian army, but not by Israel, by the Lord himself. God miraculously parts the waters and Israel crosses on dry ground. And when Egypt goes to chase the Israelites, God releases the water and drowns the entire Egyptian army in one act. And with that act, with that miracle, God judges the Egyptians, rescues the Israelites, and teaches all of his people for all time that we are always right to trust and follow the one true God. That's why the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea is one of the most famous miracles in all of Scripture. And it is. And it like, you know, there's, there's, you know, Ridley Scott made a movie off of it. There's a cartoon, Charleston Heston. Like, there's, it's one of the most famous miracles in, in all of Scripture. And so with that, there's a tendency for you and for me to think that maybe it's just kind of teaching us a history lesson. Like, this is how God worked, you know, at that time, at that place, in a distant land, and with those people. But we have to fight against that tendency and remember that, that God's Word is alive and active. It still teaches us about who God is. And so this text still continues to teach us how God still leads, how he rescues, how he delivers, and how he honors the promises that he makes. And and so with that, as strange as it may seem, this is a text that I think is fitting for us to be in around the new year. Because this story of the Red Sea, I believe it is a story that teaches us to trust God with our new beginnings to trust God with our new beginnings. Maybe as you look into 2019, you're, you're thinking this is the year of the new, of new things that I wanna pursue or new things that I, that I think God's calling me into or, or maybe it's a season that you're maybe dreading. I don't know what new things God's leading me into but, and you've got those fears or maybe anticipations for what's looking forward in 2019. I think this story can speak to that tension because it, it, it can teach us to trust 
God with our new beginnings. But for us to see that, for us to see the new beginning, we've got to go to the text and experience it ourselves. So go to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 through 22. Uh, If I hadn't met yet, my name's David. I'm the teaching pastor. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community and, and, and being here and worshiping with us this morning. We are continuing uh, our our series that we really started last fall that's going to take us through the entirety of Scripture, and it's going to take us years to do it. (laughs) So we're going to bust it up in a lot of small series, and it's based off the Gospel Project, like Christopher Weeks said earlier. Uh, But what we're doing as we're going through this series is we're seeing the progressive revelation of God, uh, of, of God to his people. And what I mean by that is, is like last fall, we studied creation and we saw how God created humanity and formed this world. And then we saw the fall, how humanity rebelled against the Lord. And then we saw God's response to that fall, how he determined that he would choose for himself a, a people to bless and, 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 to, and to pour out his favor upon. And through that people, God would begin his great redemptive act, great redemptive act of that fall. And as God works through this people, as he works through the nation of Israel, God reveals his character, his nature, and his attributes to a lost and fallen world. And so we've seen this progressive revelation of God from creation, fall, and and, and into Israel. And now once more, as we're studying this this portion of of God working with, with Israel, We've seen that while in the Old Testament, although there's no specific mention of Christ's future, uh, like a detailed future of Christ's future sacrifice, um, or there's, there's prophecies that point towards it. There are stories in Israel's uh, history uh, that are reflections, that are really foreshadows of the great redemptive work that Christ will do on behalf of all God's people who believe in him. And so we're seeing all of this play out as we, as we take this uh, journey through the text. To get everybody, I'm kind of resetting the whole thing with, with the Christmas break. To get everybody caught up on where we are so far, the narrative of scripture so far. There's creation, fall, Israel. To finish that out, how we talk about the narrative of scripture at Grace City, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. Okay, five parts. We're at kind of part three. Creation, fall, Israel. And this starts when God looks at a man named Abraham and determines to bless him. I'll make you descendants as numerous as the stars, and I'll give them a land in which to live. We focused in on that part of the promise a lot last semester. But also included in that promise, God told Abraham, I am going to bless your descendants, but your descendants are also going to suffer. And they're going to suffer in slavery for 400 years. That's also part of the promise that God made to Abraham. I guess it was November, December, we saw kind of how that began to happen. uh, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, um, was kind of led, sold into slavery that took him into Egypt. And while in Egypt, he rose to a place of power, wealth, and influence. Meanwhile, the rest of his family was still in the promised land. But a famine struck, and, and, and it ravaged the whole land. And while Joseph was in that place of prominence, his family escaped into Egypt where Joseph was able to provide for his family. And so his family kind of resettled in Egypt, hoping upon hope that they would return to promised land. After all, God had promised it to them. As time went on, the Israelites uh, thrived and prospered in Egypt, so much so that Egypt was actually uh, threatened by them. And so Egypt uh, conquers the people of Israel and, and subjugates them, makes them slaves in the Egyptian empire where they suffer for 400 years. 
Last week, we studied how God uh, heard their, the cries of the people, responded to their cries by calling Moses to be the one to help lead them out of slavery and lead them into the promised land. So last week, if you were with us, we were in the uplifting passage that spoke about the 10 plagues. And so we, we went through the 10 plagues, but we saw how each one of those plagues corresponded to a false god in Egypt and how God was systematically showing that these were false gods, not worthy to be worshipped, not worthy to be followed, not worthy to be esteemed. All the while, we also saw that these 10 plagues were compelling Pharaoh to, in fact, let the Israelites go to free them. And so after the 10th plague, Pharaoh does just that. He relents, he releases his people, and the return to Egypt, or the return to the promised land is on. And so the Israelites, they set out for the promised land. The Exodus is beginning, hoping that it's a short journey. They've suffered long enough. Hopefully it'll be a quick journey into the promised land, hoping that they were free and clear of the Egyptians. In Exodus 13, we see that is not the case. Well, the case. Let's get to the text. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So right off the bat, you can, you can see that the exit strategy might not necessarily be what we would think it would be. Because if I'm trying to leave Egypt, I want to get to the promised land as fast as I can. If we're looking at a map, we would see that, hey, let's, let's stay on the coast. And it's just a short little trip up the coast into Israel. And, and, and so that would be the fastest way to get there. But there's a problem with that. Because with that being the fastest route, there are all these military outposts along the way, both that were manned by the Egyptians, and then when they crossed the border, there would be these Philistine military fortifications. So if they go on that route, they're basically going to be fighting one battle after another, and even at one point, they'll be fighting a two-front war. Philistines to the front, Egyptians to the rear. And so God sees this, and and, God knows this, and knows this isn't the right plan. Once more, and we'll probably get to the story in the coming weeks, there's, a, there's an instance in the future of the Israelite nation when they do get on the edge of the promised land and they're looking in and they see all these Philistines, they see all these encampments, and there's like, there's no way we can win against this group. We will not take the land. So they refuse to go in. Here, before they even get to that point, God's like, eh, that's probably what they're made of. Like, he's like, I know that they're probably going to say no. And so God uh, says, we're, we're not going there. We're going into the desert. And if you and I are on that journey... Like up by the coast, it's green, it's lush, it's fertile. Into the desert? Desert's in like no water, no food, no resources. And God's like, yep, desert. So it's, it's to the desert where they turn. They turn southwest, southeast and they begin to head to the desert. The end of verse 18 is interesting to me. It, it shows a little bit of the boldness of the Israelites. They went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Like they're, they're ready to step into it. But at the same time, and I could be wrong on this, it almost feels like, they believe this is going to be, be all up to them. Like eventually they're going to, eventually they're going to face these, these armies. And so it'll, it'll be up to them. But uh, it's also God like knows if they face war, they're going to change their minds. So like, maybe they're a little overconfident <laughs> in, in, in that. Um, but at the, uh, again, I, I almost feels like they think it's, it's on their own. But look at what the text tells us in 19 and 20. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So they are, as they're traveling, as they're escaping from Egypt, heading to the promised land, they are carrying the bones of Joseph. And I, I do believe this would be a reminder to them that they are not alone. And this would be a reminder to them that this is all going according to God's plan. Because these bones of Joseph, they are not fresh bones. 
<laughs> they are over 300 years old because he's the great grandson of Abraham, right? So like he was the start of when they're in Egypt. This is 300 years later. And yet it would also be a reminder to them, hey, it was promised to Abraham that we would exist as a nation of Israel, promised to Abraham that we would suffer in slavery for 400 years. And now it's coming to an end. This is all going according to God's plan, even though they couldn't feel it. Since at the moment, these, I do think these bones would be a reminder that God is with them, that it's not going to be all up to them. And if that didn't do it, verse 20 and, and, and 21 and 22 would. After leaving Sukkot, they camped at, at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So they see and experience a physical manifestation of God's presence as they are led. And at this point, they're not being led by Moses, right? They're being led by this pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. And if I'm Moses, I'm happy about that. (laughs) Because like if I'm leading all these people, 600,000 people, and they're probably like, dude, take the short way. And, And it's like, no, but we're supposed to go in the desert. Like they could argue with Moses when the pillar of fire is like, this way, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go there, right? I want to follow the pillar of fire. I'm going to follow the miracle that I'm seeing in front of me. And it's going to be kind of hard to have a back and forth with a pillar of fire or with a pillar of cloud, right? And so like that's there and they're able to follow this and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is leading them into the desert. One other part about this that is just cool to me, uh, it's an expression of God's loving kindness to them and the way that he chooses to um, present himself to the people as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Does that seem odd to you that God would do this? Like why that of, of anything else? Remember, they're traveling through the desert, a place that would be brutally hot during the day and bitterly cold at night. And so when God's leading them as a pillar of cloud by day, he's given them the shade and the coolness of the cloud. And then at night, he's given them the light and the warmth of, of his presence. And so God's, what does that tell you? God's not detached. He's not removed. He, he, he's, he, he's not ignorant of their plight and of their circumstance. He knows what's going on. He knows their needs and he's there and he's close and he's providing and he's leading them. And he is leading them. He's guiding them. He's directing their steps and he guides them right into a place of harm. And there's just no way around this, okay? God leads them directly into an incredibly vulnerable place. Uh, let's pick it back up, verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pahiroth between Migdal and the sea. I practiced that pronunciation all week and I still butchered it. Um, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pahahiroth, opposite of Baal Zephon. So 
Pharaoh hears this word that they've gone into the desert of all places, that they didn't take the short route. Now they're trapped kind of by the desert and by the sea. And he knows this is my chance. I can get my slaves again. He can capture his people again. He thinks they're confused, thinks they've lost their mind, might even think that their God has abandoned them. This is my chance to go and strike. And, and why does he change his mind? He feels the economic loss of this, right? If the Hebrew slaves are gone, there's not gonna be a source of cheap labor anymore. And so I've got to go. And so what you're seeing in this is is almost a moment of realization because this guy who's had all the power all of his life, this society that has had all the power all its life, the power to be able to subjugate, to be able to oppress, to be able to exploit, when they begin to see that, hey, this dynamic is shifting. If these victims go, if if they're gone, if they just give that up, then their whole worldview, their whole lifestyle, is going to dramatically change. And so he doubles down on his sin and he continues to pursue and to try to recapture these slaves that God has liberated. He tries to recapture these slaves that God has let out. I will say this in this text, verse eight and verse four are terrifying to me. Um, Or it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, It's it's terrifying and confusing to me. Um, And it's, I mean, those, those are hard verses. They're confusing to a lot of people. Um, because you, you have those verses that, that speak of, of the Lord working in Pharaoh's heart this way. But at the same time, there are other passages of scripture that speak to how the, the Lord uh, desires that all would repent and that none would perish, right? And so there's, there's verses where that just pour and that speak to and show um, the, the trajectory of God's character and one of grace and kindness and mercy and redemption and wanting all to, to experience his kindness and be led to repentance. And so I hear all that and I see all the scriptures. I see the totality of scripture that points to that end. And yet you have these verses describing this heart of Pharaoh and it's just hard to um, make sense of it. It's hard to, um, I, I don't wanna say like be okay with it. But how do, you, how do you reconcile all that together? And there, there's a couple things that, that help. And I'll, I'll just say that. I don't even know if I can fully like, um, I, accept's not the word because God's word stands on its, on its own. It's, it helps me submit to the truth of the scripture, I guess would be a better way of saying that. Um, is that a, a couple things. One, uh, the text tells us a couple times why the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart because this is going to end in his glory. And so, okay, so, all right, so I know this is eventually going to help lead us to the to truths of who God is. It's going to lead us deeper into God's character. So I know, okay, so that helps me a little bit. And then also just the, uh, remind, rem, remembering that God is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. He knows the heart of Pharaoh in and out better than Pharaoh does. He knows the mind of Pharaoh better than Pharaoh does. And so at this point, God already knows whether or not Pharaoh later on in his life would ever repent or would, would ever, you know, humble himself, confess the sin and, 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 and come back to the Lord. So like the Lord knows all that, even at this point in time. And so, and, and this is my guess, could be completely wrong. You can argue with me on this. It's, uh, to me, it's almost like, okay, well, God knows he's not gonna change his mind, so he's just kind of speeding up the process at, at this point. I think another thing with this could help would be um, remembering that, that Pharaoh has seen these 10 plagues, right? He's seen these 10 divine miracles, 10 extreme expressions of God's power, God's might, God's sovereignty. And all along the way, Pharaoh... Uh, you know, eventually said no, said no, 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 I'm not going to yield. I will not relent. I will not um, submit to the Lord. And so it seems as though Pharaoh has done a pretty good job hardening his own heart all along the way as well. And so keeping all that together helps me um, submit to the truth of, of this text and see kind of what God is doing in and through this. But again, he's also setting the stage um, to, to help all see more, to help all 
see God's character, God's nature, God's attributes in and through how he's going to respond to the Egyptians and in and through how he's going to provide for the Israelites. Because the other part that helps me in this is that at at any point, if Pharaoh did repent, uh, God would have relented. We see that in the text as well. Like in the story of Jonah, the, the, the Ninevites were you know, evil in the eyes of God. God said, I'm about to wipe you off the map. And they repented. And God didn't. God, God, God didn't wipe them off the map. And, you know, God, God forgave them. And so at any point, if Pharaoh had done that, he, I believe that God would have, have, have uh, run another plan. I believe that God would have worked in and through that as well. But nevertheless, sorry, I spent too much time on that. It's just whenever you hit one of these texts, I think it's better to just drive into the tension than just kind of skip over the top of it. And I also say that's a reason we have community groups is you can take the conversation deeper there and, and talk about it back and forth a little bit. But from here, we see Pharaoh doesn't relent. Um, he, he continues to go and try to capture these slaves again and pr- try to bring them back. And if we were to keep reading, uh, and again, that's kind of a plug for the gospel project because the Bible reading plan would have had you read in Exodus 13, 14, and 15 for this week. Uh, if we were to keep reading, we'd see that when the Egyptians overtake the Israelites, panic sets in for them, and it's, it's full-blown panic. They start to question, why are we here? Moses, did you lead us in the desert because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Like, that's how, like, <laughs> the, you know, distraught they are. This is where we're going to die. And, uh, and, and it says the text, like, the questions are given towards Moses, but I do think at this point, they're like, I have to talk to Moses because I can't talk to a pillar of fire. <laughs> so, like, I've got to give my questions to somebody. And so they're directed at Moses, but they're also kind of loaded in, like, these questions back towards the, the Lord. And so uh, it's in in, in their panic that Moses replies with just a strong, strong uh, correction, a strong, strong command. It's Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. You can almost hear Moses like, hold fast, hold the line. You're gonna see this. You're gonna see a miracle. You're gonna see something happen, the likes of which you can't imagine, the likes of which you can't describe. Stand firm and watch and see how the Lord's gonna work, how the Lord's going to move. And then he says, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. How's that for a prediction of an outcome? And he's right. God tells Moses to stretch his hands over the sea. And when he does, the Lord parts the waters and the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire goes in first. And then the Israelites come in behind and they're following following the Lord in and through the parted waters. And while they're in the middle of the sea, then that Egyptian army comes in behind, certain that they're going to catch up, certain with them that they're going to win. And as the Egyptians are chasing the Israelites, this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire now moves to their rear and is a guard between the Egyptians and is guarding the, 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 Uh, back of the Israelites as they're making this escape. And it says that at this point, it's a pillar of fire and it gives only light to the Israelites and darkness to the Egyptians. Once more, it says that God confuses the armies of the Egyptians so much so where the Egyptians realize the Lord is fighting on their behalf. And when that registers for them, they're like, we gotta go, we gotta escape. But they're gonna be unable to do so. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. 
It's complete and total devastation of the Egyptians. It's complete and total deliverance of the Israelites. They don't have to worry about Egypt anymore. Like when those waters came in and covered the seabed, it essentially closed the door on their past. They can only have to look forward now, look forward into the promised land, look with hope into their future. They don't have to fear their past anymore. Now they would be wise would be wise to remember this moment and treat it as a warning for their future because Israel's going to the promised land to build a new nation. And this this miracle was God's judgment against Egypt. It was a a society devoted to worship of false gods and the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of military power. This act shows God's judgment on societies that are built on, uh, on oppression and subjugation. So it's a warning to Israel. Don't let this be your future. Don't let this be your future. You see the character of God on display as he takes this corrective act, as he judges and and destroys a society devoted against the subjugation of another. You also see God's character and nature on display and that he doesn't leave or abandon his people. He he doesn't, he doesn't abandon them. He rescues, he delivers, he honors their promise. He He said, I'll bring you out and I'll bring you into the promised land. And he's doing that in and through this miracle. And so what we see in this is this, is both an ending and a beginning. It's an end of their escape from Egypt. It's an end of their slavery, but it essentially begins their journey into the promised land. They're no longer slaves, but they are the people of God on their way to the land that God has promised. And when the people saw this, how did they respond? They feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. That's why I think this story is a story about trusting God with our new beginnings. It's a story that teaches us to trust God with our new beginnings. And I, and I know there's so many different moving pieces in it that we can be like, man, I wish I had that or I wish I had this. But, but it's, it's what the principles that it's teaching us is trusting God with our new beginnings. Like, like, I mean, maybe it's humor. Maybe I shouldn't waste the time on it. But like, you read this story and there's part of me that's like, I wish I had a pillar of fire to follow, right? Like, I wish I had a pillar of cloud to guide me by the day. Like, which job should I take? Let me follow the fire today, right? Like, like you know, is it this school or is it that school? I'll follow the pillar of cloud. Like, you know, I just kind of wish that we could have those physical manifestations of it, right? Because what, what we do is we trick ourselves into thinking, okay, if I had that, then I would never question, right? If I had that miracle, I would never doubt. I would know for sure that I'm in the center of God's will. But that's not what happened in the text, was it? Like they didn't question at the beginning when they were led in the desert, but when they got between a rock and a hard place, man, did the questions come. And they're looking at a pillar of fire. They're looking at a pillar of cloud that's, that's got him leading. They know they're right where God wants them. But the doubt and the confusion still creeps in. So like, that's not some sort of silver bullet for us. And so we can't think, man, I wish I had that or things would be different. But at the same time, we also can't overlook the daily miracle we experience with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Right? That's part of, the, um, part of the miracle of our salvation. When we place our faith in Christ, sins are forgiven, adopted in the family of God, and his word tells us that his Holy Spirit dwells within us. Romans eight eleven: the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. It is a daily miracle that that is, that that is the case, that that is the truth. And remember what the Holy Spirit does for us, what he does in our life. He teaches, he counsels, he corrects, and he guides, and he gives leadership into our life. 
Practical application of that, and I need to move because I'm running long. Practical application of this, and it's simple, and you think that's so simple, it's stupid, but I I think it's still something that we we need to practice. So like maybe you're thinking about 2019. Maybe you're looking into this year with hope, and and like I want to make my goals or my resolutions, or maybe you're you're like, I don't do goals, but I've got some things I want to do. Okay, whatever, all right? (laughs) So like, you know, if you've got some things you want to do in 2019, maybe maybe the first step is the first prayer is say, Holy Spirit, what what do you want me to change in 2019? Not, not what I want to change. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to change in my life this year? I, I think also, Holy Spirit, what new beginning do you want me to pursue? Because like, like the Israelites, they would have taken the shortest route to get to the promised land, but that's not where God wanted them to go because that wasn't the story God wanted to tell in and through his people at that time. It's not how God wanted to glorify himself in and through his people for all time. And so it's like, you're not going to go the short route. You're going to go in the desert. I want to do something amazing, the likes of which you can't even imagine. And so like there would have been the the shortest route. And so like we have our short list, but saying, God, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to change? What new beginning do you want me to pursue? Like just voicing that prayer, quieting our soul and and being uh, submissive to the direction of God and the Holy Spirit. I think that can be the first step that God uses to guide you to the new beginning that he might have for your life in 2019. That prayer is scary though, because we can't script, we can't script the answer. Right? We, we can't say, okay, I, you know, I, like if we start with our list and we're not waiting to hear how, how the Holy Spirit wants to answer that in our life. And so that prayer can be scary because we don't know how God's going to reply. We don't know how God's going to lead. And it's the same thing that we see in the text, right? Just like that route change for the Israelites took them to a place of uncertainty, took them to a place of, of really doubt and confusion. Sometimes when we are following the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit um, and, and asking him what new beginning he wants to pursue, oftentimes it might put us in a place of maybe fear, of maybe doubt, and maybe confusion where we can't make sense of it all. But it's there we need to remember the words of Moses. Do not be afraid, stand firm, and watch for the deliverance of the Lord. God, I know you led me here. I'm gonna stand firm, I'm gonna hold fast, I'm gonna hold the line, and I'm gonna watch and see how you're working, how you're moving in my life and the life of those around me. Uh, another correlation between this text and the new beginning, the Red Sea was a place of judgment for the Egyptians. Oftentimes a new beginning is a place of judgment for your life as well. Now, it might be a judgment of, of other actions that happen to you. And so you can kind of see the, the, the fallacy of those or kind of the, the damage of those that you need to make a clean break from. But also a new beginning is a place of judgment over the decisions that we've made and the actions that we've taken. Because when God leads us to a new beginning, it helps us see the futility of perhaps what we were chasing, what we were living for. Maybe we were the ones that were pursuing wealth and power at every turn, right? Maybe we were the ones that were chasing pleasure or maybe we wouldn't describe it this way. Maybe we were the ones that were kind of treating ourselves like our own gods just trying to live for our own ends. Okay, a new beginning that the Lord leads us to will help us see that's wrong. That's against the way we're created. That's against the way that he formed us. And so a new beginning is a place where there's a confession of a broken old way. A new beginning is a place where there's repentance. I'm turning away from that and I'm turning towards the righteousness and the holiness of the Lord. I'm turning towards the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life. And with that, a new beginning is also a place of rescue and deliverance. We are not confined by that past anymore. And herein lies the hope of Jesus and how the Red Sea points us to the ultimate work that Christ has done. Because on the cross, that's the place of judgment, right? It's a place of judgment where it shows us our sin and how our sin was a rebellion against the Lord and and should have brought about death to ourselves. But Christ says, give that to me. Let me have that. And we give our sin and we give our shame and we give our brokenness to him. And Christ takes all of that onto himself, all that kind of into himself and gives back holiness, righteousness, 
redemption. He leads us out of that sin and death and delivers us into the promises of God. Delivers us into the promises of God that says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Delivers us into the promises that says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess and trust in who he is. Delivers us into the promises that we are adopted in the family of God and now viewed as co-heirs with Christ. And so we're delivered out of the curse of sin and into the hope that we have in Christ. Out of our sin and ushered into the family of God. It's a new beginning that we have because of what Christ has done and it is applied to our lives when we put our hope and our faith and our trust in him. It's a way the Red Sea points us to have an exodus out of our sin and into the forgiveness and hope and the joy that he has won for us. You know, we come into churches looking for hope, for life, for in, in, to be encouraged that God is here among us, um, that he is completing his eternal redemptive work. And, uh, and that's, that's something that, that happens for the church family every Sunday when we gather. We, we, we gather to, be, uh, to experience his love and to be encouraged by him in it. And so I, I don't know what you're, what you're looking into at 2019 when you consider this next year. You know, maybe you are super excited and anticipating and all um, just jacked up for what you think is going to happen this next year. Still, I know, I know some of you have had some bad news at the end of 2018. And you're fearful of what the weeks, months, and, and, and uh, are to come in 2019. The miracle of the Red Sea teaches and shows us that we are right we are right to trust God, to lead us to the new beginning, uh, to lead us to the new beginnings that he has for us. And it might be a new beginning that's a place of judgment. It might be a new beginning uh, that places us in a vulnerable and fearful position. It might be a new beginning that we can't make sense of. But when we follow the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can rest assured that it is a new beginning that helps us learn to deepen the right fear of the Lord and to deepen our trust in him. And when that is happening in our lives, when that is our response to who he is, it is a, a, the recipe for a, for a good year, right? It's a way to help us, to, to, it's a way that we can make certain that we make the most out of 2019 because we're going into it saying, God, you lead me to whatever new beginnings you want me to have. You lead me to that place where I can deepen my fear of you and deepen my trust of you because therein, Lord, I know that I'm experiencing the life that you've created me to live and I know that I'm doing the work that you've created in advance for me to do. It's a way that we can go into 2019 eyes wide open, anticipating how God might be positioning his people to experience him and further the work of his kingdom.